we'll begin with our first message in a new, our brand new series today. I've been excited about this. Albert Moeller writes that there's one stunning building in Manchester, England, but it's now a climbing tower, a climbing center. In Bristol, there's one stunning building that's now a circus school with trapeze hanging from the rafters and every sort of circus act. Others are now grocery stores, car dealerships, libraries, pubs, all over England. These magnificent buildings are now even Islamic mosques. The question is, what do these very magnificent, venerable buildings all have in common? They were all formerly houses to Church of England congregations. Did you know that in the Church of England, they now have a team that's called, quote, the official closed churches team because they're trying to make decisions about what to do with all of these vacant church buildings. Between 1969 and 2011, the Church of England knocked down 500 church buildings and, quote, deconsecrated another 1,000. This is going on all over Canada. The Montreal Gazette recently reported that 340 church buildings are now seeking, quote, new vocations. And so this is all over North America. Uh, one neighborhood didn't even notice they reported a Methodist building that no longer even housed a congregation, and they didn't notice until the roof literally fell in on the building, and then they didn't even care. It's going all on all across the United States of America. Churches are closing in suburbs. One report stated that 4,000 congregations in America close their doors every year and they're being replaced by only 1,000 evangelical church plants. Research shows us that between 80 and 90% of all evangelical churches in the United States are not growing. And a significant portion of those are in outright decline. Folks, I'm just telling you, we face a turning point in the history of evangelical Christianity right now. Right now. And we find ourselves at ground zero of one particular question. And the question is this, how can we work toward a healthy church again? Yes, why are we coming back again and studying the church? Friends, I just want to remind you that a year and a half ago, the majority of us went through a very painful public church split. And at ground zero of this split was a disagreement over how the church is organized and what the church believes. At ground zero of this controversy that we have been in the center of, was two radically different understandings of what a healthy church is, which quite honestly sits on a foundation of two radically different views of who God is. If you're new, if you're a prospective member, if you have a green notebook in your lap, and I would encourage you to have a few conversations around this congregation about what that was like, where we stand now, and how a bad understanding of the church creates massive pain even in our daily lives. You say, that's going on out there though. I recently have been in a couple meetings with pastors, lunches with area pastors over the last few weeks. Did you know that just within a few miles from our church, not too far from here, three pastors have been forced to resign from their churches within the last couple months. The director of missions for our local association said that our churches, Baptist churches, are full of unhealthy situations. A friend of mine from seminary doing a doctoral program with me, I would consider a stellar man of God rooted in the faith, called me a couple weeks ago and said that he was thinking about packing up and quitting because his church is so unhealthy. What we see in our churches by and large is that they're full of pastors and their families who are hurting. They're full of Death and unhealth, and they are full of people with an unbiblical view of the church. And so as we walk verse by verse through the book of Ephesians over the last year and a half, what I want to see this series as is a sort of culmination 
topical series of everything that we've learned over the last year and a half, and then hopefully we'll plow deeper and take this to the next level. But I would say even in our own congregation, many questions still linger. Many questions still need further clarification. Let me give you just a few. Why can't a person that you believe is a Christian, but they're not a member of our church or any other like-minded church, why at our church can't they partake of the Lord's Supper? Why do you believe that? Why do, in our members' meetings, we vote on some things but not on others? What authority do the elders have and what authority do the deacons have? What authority does the church have? Can a couple men in a corner in a mystical cave fire all their pastors with no accountability? And why should we press people to become members rather than just frequently attending? What does all this matter anyway? And most importantly, how can the church be a springboard right here at Reformation Baptist Church for reaching the nations with the gospel from right here? I want to just say that I am more proud to be a part of a church now than I ever have been. I believe that God is doing more here. And if you give me the choice of any church in this world, I would rather be nowhere else than right here. Right here. We've pioneered the way in many areas in, in this area of healthy church life. And I take great joy in the fact that God would just let me be a part of that. But I want to say at the same time, I am very, very appreciative that you kindly took the survey that I gave out. And it showed that we really are doing a great job in a lot of areas. But just to be quite honest with you, I really toiled in not even teaching this series and not giving that survey out. And I'm glad I did. Because let me just be honest with you, and this is not to shame you in any way, just to be healthy and evaluative, to evaluate where we are. I get that there was a lot of variables. I get that many of those questions were unclear. I get all of that. But at the same time, there was a significant amount of those questions that over half the church was nowhere in the ballpark of answering correctly. Nowhere in the ballpark. Again, I get the variables. But at the same time, I think that we still have some growth to do. I think that we still have some growth to do. And so as we have our potential new members, our current members in here together, it'll help us all to get on the same page. So three things I want you to keep in mind as we walk through this series. First of all, for many of you, you're going to hear things that you've heard many times and you truly understand. And if this is you, I would ask you to keep coming and I would ask you to patiently bear with the people next to you. For others of you, there's going to be things that you thought you understood, but in fact, you're going to realize through this series that you don't actually understand those like you thought you did. I would ask you to be humble. And then a third category of people, I would say that for many of us, there's important things that we've thought about and we just still frankly have questions about. And I would ask you to be teachable. We spend millions of dollars in health care in this country, yet we throw pennies and seconds at our spiritual health care. And that's what the next six weeks are dedicated to. As we look at the church, an overview of basic ecclesiology, the word ecclesiology just simply means the study of the church and healthy church life. We're going to look at the doctrine of the church as central in God's redemptive plan. And we're going to look up basic, uh, we're going to uh, take up biblical responses to basic questions. And here's some of those basic questions we're going to look at. First of all, what is the church? That's what we're going to look at today. Second of all, next week we're going to look at how the church should be ordered. And then number three, we're going to look at why does the church exist. And then in the end, we're going to look at distinctives of a true church. How do you know you have a church, a church and not a moose club? And then we're going to look at distinctives of a healthy church. And then we're going to end by looking at distinctives of a Reformed Baptist church. I want to begin by looking at what the church is, and we're going to have to spend a significant amount of time in this message simply clearing the debris of what a church is not and fundamental misunderstandings of the church. I want you to consider seven people and their varying flavors and attitudes toward the church, and I want you to tell me what they all have in common. First of all, I want to introduce you to Bill. 
He's spiritual and he follows Jesus, but he's not into organized religion. How many of you have met Bill? Raise your hand. He can experience a greater sense of God in worship by spending Sundays in the woods or on the lake fishing. Bill has a friend named Nancy. Nancy is a little different. She used to attend worship gatherings, but now she finds it more worthwhile to watch service uh, and church online. Because that way she can listen to all of her favorite podcast preachers and then combine that with her favorite worship bands on YouTube. And then she can just collect, select the ministry she wants to give to. That's Nancy. But then there's also G, uh, Jim. You see, Jim's one of those deep, theological-minded type people. He doesn't really like the music, so he slips in right after that because he wants what he considers the meat of the Word. But then as soon as Adam's done preaching, he slips on out because he doesn't really want a lot of people uh, around him getting involved in his life because it just slows down his spiritual growth. But then there's Jasmine. She serves diligently and never turns down an opportunity. Matter of fact, Jasmine's in the nursery right now. She is every Sunday. And, and she's always serving on the security team and with the coffee and whatever women's ministry, men's ministry. But she doesn't really see a need to commit to membership. She's always there anyway. But then there's Tyrone. He's usually in church somewhere on Sunday, but rarely the same church in any consecutive two Sundays. He likes the singles group at this church, but he prefers the worship gathering at another church. But then there's Emily. Emily thinks that church opportunities should be open to everybody. And inside, she grits her teeth when her church leaders try to limit some things to members, but non-members can't be a part. And then finally, there's Brett. Brett is very involved in college ministry. He attends church from time to time, but... He's involved in the Baptist campus ministries because there's so many people his age like him. And he believes, quite frankly, that they do ministry a lot better than these churches that are full of things that just slow down his spiritual growth. Friends, we can all personally relate to or have at least had these attitudes ourselves. What do all of these people have in common? They all consider themselves Christians but they share a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. Richard Phillips wrote, People don't think much of the church, even Christians. The church is somewhere to go to get something for themselves, somewhere to make decent friends. The world looks on the church as something insignificant and weak. The great things in the world deal with skyscrapers and stock markets and rising and falling empires. But the church cannot be rightly understood apart from seeing the exalted Christ who rules over everything with all power because the church in Christ is the preeminent institution in all the world. Only the church among all institutions will endure its accomplishments blazing forever. There is therefore no greater privilege than membership in the church. It's been pictured this way. The gospel is the central diamond. There is nothing more important in our church and any other church than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church and how we do church life, ecclesiology is like the prongs that hold that diamond. It's not what's most important, but it holds what's most important. It protects what's most important. It preserves what's most important and it holds forth the gospel for all generations to see something of who God is. And so we need a reformation in our churches. We have recovered justification by faith alone. We have not recovered what it means to work that out in healthy churches that represent the glory of God. Martin Luther said, it's not surprising that sociologists find the church puzzling he said a girl of seven knows what the church is, but he had to pin thousands of words in order to explain what she understood. What is the church? No, really, it's your turn. I want you to get a pencil out, get a pen out, get a phone out right now, and I want you to write down what is the church. I can see you if you're not participating. I want you to do that right now, and I'm going to continue talking, and you're going to continue writing. What is the church? I don't need... I'm not looking for a novel. I'm not looking for a precise, 
tight theological definition. I want you simply to write down what is the church? What is the church? Specifically, the local church. And as you write that down, what we're going to do is we're going to begin by looking at common misunderstandings of the church. Mark Dever, who wrote that book I just commended to you, said one of the main reasons churches in America are so bad is because pastors don't understand what churches are. Pastors don't understand what churches are. What is the church? Here's some common misunderstandings of the church. The church as a people who are united under a common board, budget, and vision. This is the multi-service and multi-site church. This is the church that has churches everywhere and then one hub and they broadcast it on a screen. Their definition of a church would be it's any people who are united under a common board, budget, and vision so they can spread those simulcast sites all over creation if that's your definition of a church. And in best, those simulcast churches are actually churches at best. We're not interested in multi-services and we're not interested in multi-sites because that's not our definition in the Bible of a church. Here's another one. The church is a building. Micah came up to me this week. We were on vacation and he said, Daddy, let me show you the coolest thing. Let me show you this. He said, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Paisley, open it up and what? See all the... What? See all the people... Did you get that? We're teaching our children that this is the church. And when you open it up, then you get to see the... I thought we were the church. Do you see how subtle this is? Another misunderstanding. The church is a meeting. We're in church. Our church was good today. How many of you have said that? The church as a weekly evangelistic gathering for the unsaved. This is the prominent view of the church. The church is centered around reaching the lost. Five miles in that direction, the church's motto is this. Church for the unchurched. How many of you have heard that? Church for those who don't like church. Ladies and gentlemen, that is like saying this penny is a quarter. That is utter nonsense. And people are buying it Hook, line, and sinker. A church, by definition, is a, it's a group of believers that have covenanted with one another. What are we thinking, church, for the unchurched? So, in other words, believers, but they're actually unbelievers? Well, that's exactly what's going on in most cases. The prominent example of this is the church of the highlands. Friends, I'm not even convinced that that is a church. Why would you say that? Well, we're going to walk through the next six weeks, and, and especially today, and I'm going to show you what a church is, and you're going to open your Bibles, you're going to look in Matthew 16, and you're going to put your finger there, and we're going to look historically at what defines a church. And I'm going to show you, and then our, our, our job here is not to sit back and be the church police, the church critic. What we don't want is a church full of judgmental people going around saying, you're healthy, you're not, you're a church, you're not. That's not what we want. But what we do want is to cultivate a greater sense of discernment and work to pull people away from these institutions that are not even churches in many cases. And we want to be able to, to articulate why. Another misunderstanding, the church is a denomination. The quote, United Methodist Church. Another misunderstanding, the church as any group of Christians who affiliate. Friends, would you please make a note right now in your Bible or somewhere? The church is not, is not, is not any group of people, any group of Christians who gather at any place. The church is not any group of Christians who gather at any place in any time. Marty, can I use you? Absolutely. Marty and Deborah came over the other night. Some of the greatest Christian fellowship. And, and we left so encouraged because we're believers. But how tempting and how many people would have said, we just had church. Marty and Deborah, Christian, we're not a church. We're Christians. We're part of the universal church. But just because we meet and have a Bible study or go to dinner together, we're not a, we're not a church. 
Well, we're going to explain that biblically. Thank you, Marnie. That's a fundamental misunderstanding. When does a Bible study become a church? We're going to talk about that. The church is a social humanitarian group. Uh, the church just needs to feed the poor. Or the church is a religious shopping mall that produces people who come in and they're entertained as consumers. The church is filled with creative and innovative marketing schemes. I want you to look at three plagues in the modern church. Individualism, consumerism, and pragmatism. Individualism is the first plague we'll look at. Jonathan Lehman says individualism is this. I am principally obligated to myself and maximizing my life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I may choose to identify with another party, but only so long as doing so is demonstrably conducive to my own personal advantage. In other words, every person becomes their own free agent. This is nothing new. This is left over from the Renaissance, from the Enlightenment, from the American Revolution. Joseph Hellerman put it this way, God has now been recast in the role of a divine therapist who aids the individual Christian in his or her personal quest for spiritual enlightenment and self-discovery. It's individualism. It's I make my own decisions and I might choose to identify with another body of people, but only when I see that it works in my benefit. Individualism is upheld by sinful autonomy. Genesis 3, since the fall of man, man has turned God's gift of individual dignity into sinful autonomy. One becomes a law unto himself. Love is then defined as doing whatever one pleases. And so the curse word in the 21st century is authority. No one wants to be under authority. And the reason is, is because for many of us, we have an unbiblical view of authority. You see, good authority in the Bible reflects God in His authority. It produces and nurtures life. In the Bible, anytime you see godly authority exercised, the people under that authority flourish. They grow. They're built up. 2 Samuel 23.3 is a verse that you ought to know. It says this, When one rules justly in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is godly authority. Individualism not only is upheld by sinful autonomy, it undermines God's glory. In a culture full of autonomous self-ruling individuals who will not submit to God or to the church, God basically becomes a personal caterer. Friends, God is not only worthy of the glory of saving you, God is worthy of all glory from saving all of His elect. And not only saving them, God is worthy of the glory of uniting them from every tribe, tongue, and language in one body of Christ. Friends, the very nature of God is Trinitarian unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each distinct, but all in perfect, committed harmony and love. This is the fountainhead of our understanding of the church. Individualism misunderstands salvation. The good news that God sovereignly saves sinners also means that those sinner-justified saints not only have Union with Christ, but communion with the church. Note this now. Paul wrote in the New Testament, 53 times he wrote, Our Lord. Paul wrote one time, My Lord. Christianity is inherently communal. You're not a free agent. Individualism also ignores the means that God uses in salvation and sanctification. Professing Christians who refuse to join a local church assume an authority that does not belong to them. The older 18th and 19th century Baptists called this snatching the keys of the kingdom. Someone says, well, my brother, my sister, he's a Christian. My question is, says who? Says me. Friends, you don't have the authority to make that public declaration. 
That is an authority that God has given to the congregation to affirm or disaffirm someone's salvation. Can we be wrong in that judgment? Yes. But when God gives us the keys to the kingdom of God, we're saying, with my sanctified sense, I think this person's a Christian. And that is an authority that's not given to me as a pastor, but to us as a church. You don't have the authority to go around and proclaim people as Christians. In the sense of a public affirmation, that's the authority of the church. And to ignore God's purpose is to deny God's lordship. So when someone tells me, someone in our church, I don't want to embarrass them, but it, it was their brother. And so we're talking about this, and they said, my brother is a Christian. And I said, okay, what, what local church is he a member of? He's not. He doesn't like authority. He won't submit to authority. He, he, doesn't, he just kind of goes here and there. I don't believe he's a Christian. When he submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ, I'll believe that he's a Christian. But as long as he refuses to submit himself to God's means of sanctification, I don't believe that he's a Christian. He might be, but he's not acting like one. This is what the Bible teaches us. Here's one other. Consumerism. How many of you have a membership to somewhere? Raise your hand. We're accustomed to memberships. You get a store membership, and if you don't like the product, what do you do? You go down the road for a better deal for somewhere less. Memberships in our culture become a mere transaction of payment for happiness. Friends, we inhale a worldview of marketing to where we cater and please and appease. And so our individualism apart from an understanding of who God and the church is, turns us into self-focused consumers. Our understanding of the pastor has become a professional CEO, a program manager, uh, an intriguing personality. Gone is the idea of the pastor-theologian. The shepherding, caretaking, personal, ministering man of God. Friends, it is insanity to believe that watching a service on a screen can be as effective as attending in person. Now, is it helpful for those who cannot attend in person? Is it? Yes. Is it as effective? No. There's no way you can replace being in person and giving personal care. When you're at home, you can easily turn it off. When you're in person, it's a little bit harder to turn it off. And there's ministry that goes on between one and another. The church is by definition a gathering in covenant of people. A consumeristic view of the church often reveals an underlying view of God who is merely a self-selected benefit to be enjoyed on one's own terms. God becomes nothing more than a genie in a bottle. The consumer is king in any market-based worldview. And when we bring this into the church, we bring disaster. I want you to note this down. In the 16, 17, and 1800s, up until the mid-19th century, churches were training grounds for equipping members to be ministers. Around the eight, middle of the 19th century to our present day, we begin to see ministry relegated to a professional staff we begin to see a massive shift in the church. We begin to see more of a consumeristic mindset to where I'm going to come in and I'm going to choose what I like and don't like and go wherever I want to go and I want to be catered to. And this is what I want you to know. The slow and strenuous work of accountable covenant community gave way to the fast and flashy work of results-oriented productivity. Let me say that again. The slow and strenuous work of accountable covenant community. Are you with me so far? Gave way to the fast and flashy work of results-oriented productivity. Case in point. In our former church, many mistakes, many mistakes I've made. We grew so fast. We grew so fast. We were at 200 and blinked and woke up and we were at 400. So many people at one time 
so many unbelievers, so many baby Christians, and God will have to sort out which is which. And it became fast and flashy. It became enthusiastic. And people began to expect results, numbers, and all of these sorts of things. With an aside from revivals, for 2,000 years, this is not how the church has grown. Except for the occasional revival, the way healthy churches grow is slow and steady and progressive. Friends, aside from God doing some wonderful revival that I would certainly invite if it is God, healthy churches grow like this. Slow and steady. As we begin to focus on the what's going on in culture instead of what's going on in Scripture. The church forgets who it even is. I love this. John MacArthur put it this way. If you don't get this, you're going to be emailing me, wanting it later, so I would encourage you to listen carefully. The philosophy that marries marketing technique with church growth theory is the result of bad theology. It assumes that if you package the gospel right, people will get saved. It's rooted in Arminianism which views conversion as nothing more than an act of the human will. Its goal is an instantaneous human decision rather than a radical transformation of the heart wrought by Almighty God through the Holy Spirit's convicting work and the truth of His Word. This is good. An honest belief in the sovereignty of God and salvation would bring an end to a lot of the nonsense that's going on in the church. I stop because it's going to take you a second to think about that. We don't put on circus shows and we don't give our cars around here, first of all, because we don't have the money to, and second of all, because we believe that God's sovereign. And we believe that if we just use the ordinary means of grace that God gave us, that He'll grow His church, and that might and might not include numerical increase. But it will include conformity to Jesus Christ. The gospel is often packaged minimally as possible in order to appeal as massively as possible. And this is another one you're going to want to get. See, David Wells summed it up well. He said, the gospel cannot be a product that the church sells because there are no consumers for it. We can't sell the gospel because people really heard it. They wouldn't buy it. Friends, what we naturally need is not what we most want. And so as soon as we start to appeal to the masses, we're probably giving them just what their sinful natures want rather than what they actually need. You see, I stand in a long line of godly Baptist men from the 17th and 18th century who said things like this. We want unbelievers in our services. Please come. We'll, we'll encourage you to come. We'll serve you well when you're here. And by the way, in this church, you need to bring a lost friend to church with you. Find someone this week. Bring someone who doesn't know Jesus to come and hear the gospel and see supernatural community. But understand that when they come, we stand to them as spiritual advisors. The last I checked, no doctor looks at the patient and says, here, write your own prescription. The doctor writes the prescription. The patient doesn't have to take it. He can always throw it away or go to another doctor, but never can any patient write his own prescription. And when people come in, we love them, we welcome them, but we write the prescription because we have the answers, not them. And the only reason we have the answers is because we have the Word of God. And this gives way to pragmatism, the final category, which simply says whatever works to accomplish observable results is what matters. Long is the day when the question is asked, what is true? Now the question is asked, what works? what works. And if it works to accomplish the ends of getting more people, then we'll try it. And when the authority and sufficiency of Scripture is sidelined, any form of pragmatism of nonsense will fill the void. I want you to note this, the success of the biblical church is in direct proportion to its faithfulness to the truth of God's Word and conformity to Jesus Christ. Are we a healthy church at Reformation Baptist Church? Friends, you can't answer that question by looking around and seeing how many people are coming. If you begin to put those sorts of expectations on your pastors, you're requiring us to be God. 
God's the only one that can save. The barometer or whether or not a church is healthy or not is, is that church increasingly conforming to the image of Jesus Christ according to His Word? And so I would say this, as much as we want to reach the lost, and we're going to dedicate a lot of this series to that, churches need to stop obsessing over attracting non-believers to their services, and they need to start equipping the saints to live as witnesses to the gospel. Amen. Additional clarification I want to notice. There are parachurch ministries. And parachurch ministries are very helpful. Let me give you an example of a parachurch ministry. How many of you are thankful for Ligonier and R.C. Sproul? GTY and John MacArthur. Heartcraft. The International Mission Board. Founders. Baptist Campus Ministries. Nine Marks. All of these are alongside parachurch ministries. But friends, you have to understand that the place of these ministries is alongside the church. These ministries are not the church. God never promised any organization, including Ligonier or Grace to You, that He would build that ministry and the gates of hell wouldn't overcome it. God promised that to the local church. And so all of those ministries are to come alongside and serve and feed and help the church. At the same time, it's very tempting and we must be careful not to make mistakes that we've made before. Even within the church, we can have ministries that serve as competing tribes and basically become disconnected islands from each other. Women's ministry, children's ministry, youth ministry, you name it. And they basically become islands under the same church name. The church should be one unified body led by trusted elders with serving deacons. I want you to look with the rest of the time that we have at the biblical constitution of the church. Let's begin in the Old Testament where we see centrally in all the Bible that Christ is the head of the church. I want to take you all the way from Genesis to modern day and I want you to walk with me. Throughout the Old Testament, God is creating and calling out a people for Himself to extend His rule and to demonstrate His glory. To Abraham, he said that he would bless Abraham and through Abraham, he would create a people who would be a blessing to the world. God is calling out progressively a people for Himself which cultivates or culminates in the revelation of Jesus Christ and the church. They would worship God truthfully and they would witness to that truth through disciple making. That brings us to the New Testament. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Look at your neighbor and say ekklesia. It simply refers to an assembly. From ancient Greek times, the word referred to any public gathering of the people. Commonly, they would come together as a community to hear a matter, to hear a conclusion, to judge a, a situation. By the time we get to the New Testament, this word is transformed into an entirely different meaning. Not different in the sense that there's no relationship to what it was, but now it's more full. Now it's the new covenant community of people who are in Jesus Christ. It's a gathering, an assembly. But are you making connections as I'm going through this? I said that the very definition of the word is a a gathering of people together. But the modern strategy in church life is simulcast, where we have this group in China and this group in Mississippi and this group in Indonesia, but they're all one local church. Friends, that defies the very definition of a church. And I would argue that it's not healthy. 90 out of 114 uses of the word ecclesia refer to local assemblies of Christians called out by God in a particular time and place. Almost every use of this word in the New Testament refers to a specifically defined group of people. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promises to build the church on the foundation of the disciples or the apostles. 
And New Testament ministry would revolve around the work of the local church. These are people who are gathering together in real time, in real space. And the reason that's important is because they're not only just happenly the people, the same people who go to the same building at a certain time in the week. Friends, the church is not a group of people who just happen to meet in the same building at the same time. If that's the case, Joel, you go to church with people Monday through Friday. You end up in the same building with the same people in the same time of the week. The church is a group of people who have covenanted together to exercise the ordinances according to Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. His universal church of all believers. Which is expressed through local churches of certain believers. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the what? Keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So when we gather for a members meeting, we exercise the keys of the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes, but Jesus is promising to build His church. This is a group of particular people who have confessed Jesus Christ biblically. I want you to move to the early church to the medieval period. After the closing of Scripture in the early church, persecution was fierce. We get to the 4th century to a man named Constantine. How many of you have heard of Constantine? Constantine basically established Christianity as the empire's religion, which led to the first version of a sort of cultural Christianity. All of a sudden, for the first time, it's expected that everybody will join the church, not because they're Christians by conversion, but because they're citizens in the kingdom. And not the spiritual kingdom, they're citizens in the empire of Rome. And so because they're natural born citizens of that kingdom, therefore they should be a part of the church. That was followed by darkening of the gospel, where salvation and grace plus works was added on, mediated through the church. We come to what our church was named after, the Reformation period. Men like Huss and Wycliffe and Tyndale paved the way, preaching that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone. Martin Luther sparked it. John Calvin systematized its doctrines, and Scripture and the Gospel became central. We continue moving forward from Reformation history, and it brings us to what's called the Separatist. The Separatists couldn't conform any longer to the established church, so they left. The Puritans attempted to reform the church from within, and they were cast out in 1662. On their hills, the hills of the Puritans, our forefathers in the faith, Reformed Baptists took the doctrine of Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Reformation heroes who simply stole it from the Word of God, returned to the Word of God, They worked out that theology and what they ended up with is Reformed Baptist churches. So what we would argue is that if Martin Luther, Calvin, and all those guys had the time and the life to continue to work out their theology in a proper understanding of the church, carrying it to its logical ends, they would end up in a Reformed Baptist church. We move on and I want you to look at the nature of the church. Reformed Baptists, Baptists in general, believe that the church is composed of truly baptized Christians, not just those who live in a geographic area. Let me show you what the church is like. And I'm going to go through this quickly, so I just want you to listen. Either just listen or either just look through your notes. But these are some important distinctions. First of all, there's the visible church. This is the church as we see it. And it will unintentionally include unbelievers, but the best we have responsibility as a church, we should not let non-believers join the church. Non-believers should not be able to stay in the church as members. 
But then there's the invisible church. The invisible church is all believers of all time. That's the church as God sees it. So similarly, the universal church is all believers of all times. The way that you prove that you're part of the universal church is by joining a local church, a particular church. And did I mention that the church is not any gathering of Christians in any place? That's a confusion of the universal church, all believers, for a specific expression of the universal church in a local church. There's the organizational church. This is the framework, kind of like a body with bones and skin. This is why we have elders and deacons and church government and member meetings. But then there's the church as an organism. This maybe you could describe this way. It would kind of be like having what most people want today is the church as an organism without the church as a structured organization and like this. Taking all of your vital organs, your heart, your kidney, all of those sorts of things and just plopping them right down here on the table. What good is that? That organism can't live. But if you have proper framework, proper church government, if you work out the things that we're talking about, you have a body that can protect and hold those organs so that the church can function freely the way God created it to. Does that make sense to you? There's the church militant, which is the church at war on earth. And there's the church triumphant. That's the victorious assembly of the church in heaven. Finally, there's the church in the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. The church is an expression of the kingdom. The church is an expression of God's rule, which advances forth His rule through disciple making. I want to show you how the church is pictured in the Bible. Note these down. The church is a people and a family of God. The church is the people of God. This is why we don't believe that it's healthy to have a church full of just cowboys. We don't believe that it's healthy to have a church full of just college students. We don't have, believe it's healthy to have a church just full of women or just full of men. This is why we don't want a church that's only full of young people. The church in the Bible is a family. And it should look like a family, and it should look diverse in its generations, in its ages, and its backgrounds. And they should all demonstrate that Christ is the underlying foundation that brings them all together. The church is the body and bride of Christ. Every member has an important role in the body. The, ch the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which means that when we gather here in a special way, God's presence dwells among us. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We don't need any more clever marketing schemes. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We protect the truth and we proclaim the truth. The early creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, they affirm that the church is one there's unity, and we have to protect this unity. The church is holy. A couple of people mentioned, why does it even matter on their surveys? Why does it even matter that we go through this? Because the church is to be holy because the church is a reflection of the character of God. So through the church, we're telling the world what God's like. Can unbelievers tell the church appropriately what God's like? Not in their lips, not in their life. And so, as the Apostles' Creed says, the church is one, there's unity, it's holy, it's set apart, reflecting Christ. It's Catholic, which means it's universal, not Roman Catholic. It's all true believers of all time. And it's apostolic, which means it's founded on the teaching of the Apostles. Here's where I want to end with the rest of our time together. We're going to take two weeks to go through these. But what happened in the Reformation is that Luther and all of those with him said that the church is not defined by the Pope. And some of you prospective new members are going to drop your teeth when you read your confession and it says the Pope is the Antichrist. 
But they said the church is not defined by the Pope. The question therein is, what is the church defined by? In other words, how do you know, Keith, that you have a church and not a golf club? How, how do you know that you have a church and not the YMCA? And they set the mark by three distinct fundamental features that we find in Scripture. And I want you to write these down. First of all, is the right preaching of the gospel. Is the gospel going forth? Second of all, is a proper use of the ordinances. Friends, God only gave us two ordinances. Let's make sure we get those two right. This is the defining mark of what makes a church or is not a church, is a proper use of the ordinances. Again, in this session, we're just clearing debris. Let me tell you what is an improper use of the ordinances. To give some church rally and say, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. If you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. If that's you, pray this prayer and then come down and be baptized. And we're baptizing 10,000 people on Easter Sunday. Friends, that is a sad and destructive misuse of the ordinances that I would say puts a church in jeopardy of possibly not even being a church. We're preaching the gospel. We're serving the Lord's Supper and baptism correctly. We'll take a few weeks and look at those. And by implication, we're practicing church discipline in a godly, gracious, Scripture-honoring way. So here's the definition of the church. Consider a scenario. Christians come together. They're encouraged and they leave thinking. You know, we were at the Krause house the other night. That was a good Bible study. We just had church. But then there's a question. At what point, Marty, do they really form a church as opposed to just being a group of Christians who meet? Matt, you guys need to listen intently more than anybody else in the building. If God calls you and Marley to missions, you're going to end up in some backwood tribes of people where there is no church. When you begin to preach the gospel, at what point does that actually become a church? Or at what point in our context does a Bible study become that church and so people need to leave their church and go to the Bible study or they need to leave the Bible study and go back to their own church? Does the question make sense? Everybody's just looking at me. You with me, Brad? Look in your Bibles in Matthew 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To put this as simply as we know how, two elements that have to take place to have a local church. The first one is a right confession of Jesus Christ. The church is founded on Scripture and the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. A confession is simply a summary of what we believe. And so it's important that we be confessional, that we use our confession, that we summarize this is who we believe is that Jesus Christ is. And as error entered into the church in the opening centuries of the church, they added to their confession because they had to say, this is what the Bible teaches, not that. And so we see this throughout the Bible, that a local church is centered around the confession that Jesus is Christ. Again, you hear that and you nod your head and give agreement, but we've got to make connections. In other words, our common factor in this church is not, Wayne, that we're around the same age with children around the same age in the same general demographic. I know you're like way older than I am. I see the beard, gray in your beard. I'm trying to flatter you. It's not that we happen to be in the same demographic. What makes a church a church, Melinda and Christy, is not that y'all just so happily are wonderful but tired moms with a house full of kids. That is a natural affinity and that would naturally draw y'all together, wouldn't it? Because you have that in common. What's not the common confession of the church is that we both like guns. I like guns. Luke, do you like guns? It's not that we're all white. 
It's not that we're all somewhere around middle class and we live in Wetumpka and we know how to interpret language from slap out and Titus. <laughs> None of these things are bad things, especially the part about slap out. But none of these things define the church. What defines the church is a common confession of Jesus Christ. If you share that confession and you affirm our confession of what the Bible teaches, this is supernatural community. It's not just two people who are like each other. Number two, look in verse 17. Not only a right confession, but a credible confessor. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Jesus affirmed him as a confessor. And this is what we do in our member meetings. Anybody can say Jesus Christ is Lord. But you have the responsibility in our member meetings, members, when we accept prospective members, the elders will interview them, will spend time with them to find out what they believe about Jesus Christ and what our church holds to. But you have an opportunity, you have a responsibility to say, I believe that that person is a credible confessor. I think they're a Christian. I don't think they're perfect. I think they've got a long way to go. And by the way, I think I've got a longer way to go. I don't think that by any means there's perfect holiness in their life or any of our lives. But I see faith and repentance in them. I think they've been converted. Do you have a confession of Jesus Christ? And do you have the right confessors of Jesus Christ, and they covenant with one another to hold one another to that confession. And they demonstrate that through the ordinances. The ordinance of baptism admits them into the church, and it's a public declaration that I belong first to Jesus Christ, and by implication of belonging to Jesus Christ, I belong to this church. And then through the Lord's Supper, continually affirming their salvation. I believe this person is a Christian. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we move from Matthew 16 to Matthew 18. In Matthew 16, we see the keys of the kingdom. In Matthew 18, we see the exercise of the keys of the kingdom. We see in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. And we walk through the process of church discipline that we'll take an entire session to look at. And we get to verse 19 and 20. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done by my Father in heaven. In other words, we exercise the power of heaven and we need to reflect the will of heaven through the Word of God in those decisions. Somebody get a coffee cup or get a Lifeway t-shirt because here it comes. For where two or three are gathered in my name, what? Friends, this does not mean nobody's at church today and we feel really bad about it and we wish there were more here. We're kind of embarrassed that the crowd's so low, but praise God, if there's at least two or three, then God's with us. If that's the case, then what about when you're alone at home? Is God not with you then? If that's the case, then Luke, tonight at midnight when I'm praying and God's doing things in my heart, I'm going to have to go to your house and we're going to have to get together or God's not going to be with us. Is that okay? What he's saying is when you gather in my name, even a small group of people, you gather in the name of Jesus Christ, as a particular people in a particular place to exercise the keys of the kingdom, particularly and no longer thinking that a person is saved and excommunicating them from the church. Listen, friends, we can tell you from personal experience, this is going to be hard. But by the way, God's with you. Because He promised to be. And He's going to honor what's difficult to do when it's done according to His Word. The local church is to reflect the universal church as a faith family and as a community, a covenant community. And we pray that increasingly, as we do that, 
that it would be found among us just as we see in 1 Corinthians 14. The church is by definition a gathering of Christians. What about unbelievers? We pray that unbelievers would come in. We pray that we would go out. And we pray that as unbelievers are among us, that just as 1 Corinthians 14, 25 says, that the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face as an unbeliever, he would cry. He would worship God and declare that God is really among you. Friends, may it be said at this church that God is really among those people. I sense God in those people. And may, as a church, we rightly reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ and be a clean window through which the world can see God. Father, thank You for our time this morning. And we pray that believers would be built up in faith this morning. Encouraged. Convicted. Lord, we pray that unbelievers would be drawn to Jesus Christ. And we pray that our lives would be the fragrance and the aroma of Christ. We ask that you bless our time together, that you be with us and you be honored and exalted as the high and holy one and as the father and friend of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.